Sunday the 11th of October Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden, excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. I've always loved the little audio clip that signals the first track, Jojo's Jacket on Steve Malcolmus's self-titled post-pavement solo outing. After a slight whir and a few clicks, we hear the voice of Yul Brynner answering a question that seems it was he was required to give account of in all his interviews, why the bald eagle, Yul. His answer, as you can see from this clip, has already acquired a well-rehearsed patina to it and goes as follows. And in a funny way, the shaving of my uh, head has been a liberation from uh, a lot of uh, stupid vanities, really. Uh, It has simplified everything for me. It has opened a lot of doors, maybe. The historically significant shearing, at least as far as the American popular culture in the 50s and 60s was concerned, occurred a few weeks into the early tryouts for the then four-hour-long musical The King and I, playing in New Haven and Boston, where it looked, initially, as if it was going to be something of a flop for Rodgers and Hammerstein. Irene Sharaf, who would do all the costumes for the musical, remembers her first meeting with Yule on Madison Avenue, where the subject of his barnet came up. What shall I do about my hair, he asked her. At the time, according to his biographer Michelangelo Capua, Brunner was bald with one or two strands across the top of his head and a fringe of dark hair around the back. Shave it, Sharaf replied impulsively, to which Yule reacted with horror. Oh no, I can't do that. I have a dip on the top of my head with nothing covering it. I'd look dreadful. During the rehearsals in Boston, Yule finally did the deed. He then covered his head with the same furniture polish he applied to his body to look brownish-yellow. Later, he replaced this with a more natural, non-toxic walnut makeup that did not easily run with sweat. His new look was a hit with audiences, but especially with... The ladies! There are so many to the flower! Ladies! Looks proximity to power! Ladies! They delighted and distracted the Martha Washington named her feral tomcat after him. That's true. Brynner's shaved head became his trademark, his logo, and probably resulted in more bald men having sex over the following decades than ever before. Nine months into the COVID-19 pandemic, one hears a similar sentiment about the virus acting as a catalyst for clarification, streamlining, and forging new paths in our lives. Not that I have noticed this in many of my clients. The neurotic mind... I know this for myself, can be somewhat impervious to existential truths. Humankind cannot bear very much reality, Eliot reminds us in the Burnt Norton section of his Four Quartets. Many would argue that one of the seeds for neurosis is that of a somewhat extreme, as in instinctively extreme, survivalist extreme reaction towards the biologically contingent state we find ourselves in, a defence against the 
painful materiality of sickness, old age and death, against impermanence and entropy and lack of control, which suffuses the very fabric of our existence. But occasionally something comes along, something like a completely new look or a profound personal recognition that releases us from a whole set of narratives and assumptions about ourselves and the world, a personal but no less all-inclusive paradigm shift that marks a new way of living and being. For me, stated in the simplest and most succinct way, I think I am finally beginning to take on board, not just as an idea but as a lived experience, that I, which is to say you, are an animal. Yes, an animal that uses symbolic language and can plan and cast its perceptions through imagination into the future or the past. But in terms of how I, how we function, and in terms of whether we are entitled to more from this world with regard to physical and emotional sustenance than any other living creature, my humble recognition is that we are not. And this is a painful recognition, and like all painful recognitions, we would rather not take it on board if we can. When Darwin got to South America, he was tuned to understand racial differences because his family had brought him up in anti-slavery and here he found slavery in the raw. This shocked him. I may mention one very trifling anecdote, which at the time struck me more forcibly than any other story of cruelty. I was crossing a ferry with a Negro who was uncommonly stupid. In endeavouring to make him understand... I talked loud and made signs, in doing which I passed my hand near his face. He, I suppose, thought I was in a passion and was going to strike him. For instantly, with a frightened look and half-shut eyes, he dropped his hands. I shall never forget my feelings of surprise, disgust and shame at seeing a great powerful man, afraid even to ward off a blow, directed, as he thought, at his face. This man had been trained to a degradation lower than the slavery of the most helpless animal. That made Darwin wonder how humans could be created so high and so low. Could the same God have created Cambridge Dons and these savages who lay upon the ground and lived hand to mouth? This, I think, was the most disturbing intellectual experience in Darwin's entire life. It shook him to the core to see naked people his own age surviving in a hostile environment and of course he was seeing them not only as people but as living organisms our willful blindness towards the core universality of our creatureliness is often laid at the feet of rene descartes in the fifth part of his on method descartes alludes to various correlations between machines automata and animals. Quote, Doubtless when the swallows come in spring, he writes, they operate like clocks. The actions of honeybees are of the same nature and the discipline of cranes in flight and of apes in fighting. Interestingly, he doesn't talk about the human ape in fighting, which I think could fit well into that description. Descartes goes on to suggest it is more probable that worms, flies, caterpillars and other animals move like machines than that they all have immortal souls. And a few lines down, he calls an animal 
an automaton. For Descartes, the surest proof of lack of reason, and thus also of the inability to experience pain in animals, is their lack of propositional language. It is on the back of this kind of thinking, this story about the inherent differences between human animals and other animals, that we have constructed modernity. Modernity that has a stomach which continues to feed itself on animal flesh and clothe, as well as technologize itself on slave labor products. But the claim that feels like nothing to be a non-human animal seems incredible if judged from the viewpoint of everyday accounts concerning animals and their behavior. It strikes one as truly absurd, writes Elisa Altola in her book Animal Suffering, Philosophy and Culture, to suggest that a dog who has been injured and is crying in pain is actually feeling nothing at all. What we are asked to do is to abandon intuition and experience concerning animals and to accept a framework that tells us that our basic perceptions are flawed in a very fundamental way. This is too high a price to pay for a philosophical argument, she argues, and I agree. And if anything suggests that there is something inherently wrong with skepticism of animal minds and pain, indeed, there are good philosophical reasons to abandon the skeptical approach. Self-consciousness and propositional language may lay the basis for particular forms of human pain. For instance, pain may be heightened or lessened by the ability to introspect on or analyze one's own feelings. Nonetheless, it can be argued that the rudimentary ability to feel pain does not require introspection or language, for neither is a necessary requirement for phenomenal consciousness. End quote. This was written in 2012, but even 250 years ago, Voltaire pointed out the guff inherent in Descartes' reasoning with this line. Answer me, machinist, he writes in his philosophical dictionary, has nature arranged all the means of feeling in this animal so that it may not feel? So perhaps it is fair to say that we all suffer, both man and so-called beast, where a fruitful definition of suffering is that of substantial physical discomfort and or mental distress, which affects our whole being and sidelines most, if not all, other considerations normally important to us. When my dog Max is suffering from a thorn in his paw and trying to extract it, he suffers no less than I do, or rather, he endures his primary suffering in the same way that we do. It's only the secondary suffering, the mind's narratives about how the thorn got into his paw and how he should have been more careful when bounding through the brambles, that I don't think he suffers. If that makes him just a stupid animal, well, wouldn't you like to be a bit more stupid in this way? Of course, it is quite possible Elisa Altola goes on to argue that, based on their unique cognitive abilities and senses, animals are actually capable of types of suffering human beings cannot even fathom. What is it like, she writes, to be a fish dragged out from the sea or a bird shot down from the skies? The variety of capacities in the animal world is astonishing. Many creatures experience the world in wholly different ways from human beings, by using entirely different sensory capacities. Even the animals most familiar to us, such as dogs, 
such as my beloved Max, who is snoozing on the couch next to me as I record this, even these animals have ways of making sense of the world that are utterly unknown to human beings. The worrying prospect is that the makeup of animals may lead to types of pain and suffering that are alien to us and that will therefore escape our attention. Perhaps the dog left alone in the yard harbors feelings that can never be understood by the human mind, and perhaps the chicken or the pig in the factory farm has a repertoire of extremely negative experiences that human beings cannot even begin to comprehend. There may be a silent world of suffering on the other side of the species border of which human beings, often the very perpetrators of that suffering, have no understanding at all. And of course, most of us, particularly those of us who are okay with animals being slaughtered to clothe and feed us, would prefer not to know of other forms of animal suffering distinct from our own. Humankind cannot bear very much reality, which is why, second to our love of ourselves and those other human beings who care for us or benefit from our care, what we most love on mind-altering, state-shifting, reality-massaging substances and mind-focusing distractions. No need to feel bad about this. We are always trying to gamify the present, and this telling is, of course, inherent to that. And in a funny way, the shaving of my uh, head has been from uh, a lot of uh, stupid vanities, really. Uh, it has simplified everything for me. It has opened a lot of doors, maybe. I'm not what you think I am. I'm the king of Siam. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. 